0: This is Joel Spolsky, the host of the Stack Overflow podcast. Our podcast depends on listeners like you, who aren't you, because you're already listening. And we need more listeners like you. We don't have any kind of fancy marketing budget. So please, if you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends to subscribe.
1: (laughs) How'd you get a clip of my laugh?
2: I think Jen already claimed the laugh. We can only have one.
3: <laughs> oh, you're a cackler, too.
1: One oh,
2: identify yeah. as a witch.
3: I am a payrolled hackler. <laughs>
4: Who does it better?
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I said one word and choked on it, so that's good. that was great.
5: We're all set. Oh, that's
3: Star Trek, right?
5: Is it? That? Oh. that was for Joe. Yeah. Oh, that's horrendous.
2: <laughs> this is the Stack Overflow podcast, episode 120, recorded Thursday, October 26, 2017, at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York City, where more than 8 million people... Live in peace, enjoy the benefits of democracy, and intermittently get serviced by mass transit. Today's podcast is brought to you by Oracle. Stack Overflow appreciates Oracle's support for this podcast and for our community. Learn more about all the ways Oracle supports open source, Java, and developers like who? Like you at oracle.com slash developers. And on today's podcast, we have an incredible lineup of guests and co-hosts. We have our news editor, Ilana Yataki. Hi. Hello. We have a special guest, Jen Schiffer. Hi. We have our executive producer, Caitlin Pike. Hello. Welcome. And our engineering manager, Matt Sherman. Hello. We are also excited to have joining us a little bit later, Leon Young, the CEO and founder of Cogniz. Hi. And we wave fondly to Joel, Jay, and David, who are not joining us today. I am going to be your host, Anil Dash. Welcome back, everybody.
1: Thanks, Thanks, Anil. Good to see you.
2: This is exciting to be here. I'm also glad to join. There's so much fun stuff going on today. I think we should probably start by a little thank you to our sponsor, Oracle. Does that make sense? I think so. You know, as we said, we mentioned, they are really interested in supporting the community here at Stack Overflow. I think they are making a lot of steps towards really helping engage with developers in new ways. And I think one of the things that's most exciting to see is that they seem to be really sincere about engaging with the developer community. So check out oracle.com slash developers to connect with them. And I think we also want to give a shout out to Code to Inspire. Caitlin, I'd love for you to sort of give a little bit of background about what Code to Inspire is doing.
4: Yes, of course. A few months ago, actually, may have been a year ago now, the founder of Code to Inspire, Fareshta Faroo, came on the podcast to talk about the amazing code school she created in Afghanistan for women. She reached out to us recently to tell us about her organization. It's expanding their locations, and they're going to have another group of about 80 students enrolling in the coding school soon. So they hope to raise about $40,000 for Indiegogo. If you would like to help, and we would love it if you did, please go on to generosity.com, which is Indiegogo's platform, and search Building Afghanistan 2.0 with female coders.
2: That is really—it's an incredible project. I think is something that we can show a lot of support for at generosity.com. And on a completely opposite note from that inspiring work that they're doing, I think it's time for us to dive into the most important Halloween-related question to start things off, which is Candy. What is the best candy that we should be giving out to the children and alleged children who show up at our doorsteps? Because I have strong opinions on this as a former child myself.
3: Loose M and M's. Loose M and M's. Yeah, just the green ones.
2: Whoa, just the green ones. Is that in your like your backstage rider, like green M and M's only? Yeah, wow.
3: Yeah. <laughs> then I don't have to worry about picking up candy to give out to the kids.
2: Okay, so Jen votes loose M and M's. I think that's disgusting. <laughs> I'll go with Kit Kats. Those are good ones. Milky Ways, mm. those are wait, always good. Wait,
5: wait. Good. You're fancy.
2: Two bars or four are Kit Kats?
5: Oh, I'd say, you know, Halloween is all about the variety. So I'm going to, you know, even though kids might not agree with me on this, I'm going to go with the small one, the two, the two bar. Oof.
2: Now. Next next house. Mm. <laughs> next. Nice.
1: Well, I'll be saving all the Snickers bars for me to eat mm-hmm. while I hand out all the pencils and raisins.
5: Wow. Pencils oh, and raisins. That's... Are
1: the raisins loose? Of course, because <laughs> yeah. then you got a trail mix mix of mine.
4: <laughs> Following in my mother's footsteps,
2: Caitlin, give me a better candy than loose uh, candies. So
4: I will always have Reeses, not because it's my favorite, but because oh. it's the one that everyone will barter with you for.
2: Oh, so, it's the currency.
4: It's the currency.
2: Wow, it's, it's like Bitcoin. Candy. It's Bitcoin. I was just it's say the Bitcoin yeah. for for Halloween. <laughs> well, that's all right. I hadn't thought about that. I like that. I like the the market value of that. We have to optimize for. Not being able to hide razor blades, right? The most important consideration, Halloween candy is the apocryphal razor blades. So I think the loose M&Ms are out on those grounds. Is that You
3: still can't
1: a
4: hide razor blades. No, that it's never,
5: never a, a thing. thing. It never it's was. always been
2: a myth.
4: But you can poison M&Ms. You can poison especially anything. Especially if they're
2: loose. No, but especially M&Ms are like default to poison.
4: But it's like a hard shell, like. Melts in your mouth, not in your hands.
2: Yeah. That's Wow, well, that's allegedly... <laughs> I got that right. whats well, what does That takes us to
3: our second sponsor. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Apparently M&M's is on the take here. But no, you can't have Reese's and M&M's. Aren't they mortal enemies?
4: They are. They're two different companies. Yeah,
2: yeah. Reese's is Hershey's, hmm? and M&M's is... Mars. Uh, the Mars. 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 Oh. Okay. I thought it was Uber. Okay.
4: So fun story on that. My aunt worked For the Mars Corporation when I was growing up, and so she's visiting, from Mars, it's she not is from on Mars. Mars. Wow, fun fact! So, growing up, going to her house was the greatest thing ever. One, because she's mm. an amazing aunt, but two, oh, right. her yeah. office was full of candy. Yeah, at I mean, all times. family, blah
2: blah blah, but candy, yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> obviously.
5: Yeah. Obviously, yeah. I grew up
2: near Hershey, and it was a very big point of pride that ET chose Reese's Pieces, which is just like it's product sponsorship, like it's not magic. But at the time, you know, as kids, it was like, wow, you know, our friend's mom works at Hershey and they make Reese's and E.T. likes that and therefore she must be a good person.
3: Reese's Kid are my logic. actual favorite. Whoa. Yeah. Reese's pieces, pieces. or oh. if you give out the Easter eggs like from the previous Easter, I'm fine with that too. I like Reese's. Peanut oh, butter but cups then in why in you having,
2: oh, you're just trying to give away the M&M's so there's more Reese's? Is that the.
3: I don't know. I all just, right. I love all candy. Didn't, I love feel all like candy. you didn't plan
5: ahead. I feel oh. like Jen is not very brand loyal. It I like, her, I'm
3: on a third floor oh goodness, walk up, so yeah. I don't give out candy on Halloween.
5: Uh, I see. Mm, I, I, I'm not saying brand loyalty is a good or a bad thing. It's probably a I think, I think a bad anyone thing, who knows you know? me
3: will tell you I am always on brand.
2: I see. Super yes. on
3: brand. <laughs> And handing out loose green M&M's is probably about as on brand as I get.
2: Yeah, I only associate green M&M's with the very famous, like, the bands that are like, there's no green M&M's in our rider backstage and you're going to throw a fit. And this sounds like it's kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. Like, I want something that's going to, like, increase the petulance and the, like, I need this arbitrary task done for me. Is that just me? Is everybody else? No. Right now it's a lot of, like, wow, that guy's nuts. (laughs)
3: Twizzlers are good, too.
2: Oh, Yeah. (gasps) Yeah, <gasps> Twizzlers. But that's not Cherry I don't feel like Twizzlers glue. are Halloween candy. They're not a valid. Like you have to have like chocolate or like It
1: has to be chocolate? Candy
2: bars or like but not uh, not yeah. like licorice. That's not.
1: I don't know. They have individually wrapped Twizzlers. Yeah. yeah. What
2: Like one Twizzle? No, yeah.
1: it's four. They're four yeah. small pieces. No, no, no. They oh. they have they have ones that are like the oh, normal yeah, size.
3: yeah. yeah, individually yeah, yeah. But no wrapped.
1: Hands out are
2: they those. called Twizzle? is it is no, a single Twizzler? Twizzle? Yeah. One twizzle? It's just a Twizzler. Okay. A a Twizzler. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's right.
4: Multiple is twizzle. Right,
2: no multiple like, twizzlers. Twizzle. Twizzles a verb. <laughs> oh, what's the singular of Skittle? There's a whole word for it, like a pip. They have a brand guideline thing. Yeah, yeah, it's very important. This I was really this is a revelation to While me. Well, we're
4: googling this. Yeah, please uh, Google it. Indiv-
3: an individual Skittle is an Adobe Photoshop.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, please don't use it as a noun. So
5: you're saying Skittles is only a brand when you're talking about like the package, and then yeah, the...
2: and then it's like a pip or something. It's a like pip of Skittle. It's like a. Lego brand building blocks.
3: Not so much the, the package as the idea. I found I see. it.
2: Aha, see, I'm not lying.
4: Internally, oh. and apparently only internally, mm-hmm. they call an individual Skittle a Skittle's lentil. A lentil.
2: <laughs> a lentil a of Skittle. Like a that.
5: Skittle's
3: lentil. Uh, yeah. The whole thing. Yeah. A lentil
2: of Skittle. And they're healthy like lentils. Why right? can't right? I mean, I mean, they just yeah, call yeah. it a and Skittle? Try. Well, that would be against the law. I'm sorry. I don't make the laws. I just obey them. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good to know. So four lentils of Skittle... At my house. That's what you're giving out? Yeah, That's no more, no less. Just okay. the green ones. Count your lentils, children.
1: We haven't spoken about one candy in particular, and I'm really curious mm. what people think about it.
2: Polarizing candy?
4: Candy corn. <gasps> Ooh. You know, oh. I think that may even be a constitution question. Should we
5: Should we jump
2: into it? I said. Oh. oh, wow. Look at that. I it's have like a professional broadcaster here. So obviously, candy corns are disgusting. I don't mean to weigh the scales here, Thank but you. it's worth having a constitutional discussion. For people who have the wrong opinion. So each week we bring you a proposal as we prepare a constitution for Stack Overflow. And you, our listeners, help decide on whether that proposal becomes part of our new constitution. Before we get into the candy corn debate, I think we have to revisit last week's proposal because it was an equally contentious and polarizing one. That proposal was, it is forbidden to participate in a hangout or other video conference while working at a treadmill desk or being on any other form of treadmill. And this, of course, is a utterly reasonable proposal to make part of the Constitution. Ilana, will you tell us what the results were of the pro versus con on this treadmill question? I shall. Thank
1: Surprisingly, sixty percent said pro <sighs> that you are allowed to walk on your treadmill during
3: Google Hangouts. They're the cops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those, they're trying we, to catch we found, you. We found the cops,
4: and they're using treadmills. <laughs> <Yes.
3: laughs>
2: I think it would be violently antisocial to be treading mill while conferencing.
4: Yeah. But you can walk and talk. You do that all the time. It's mm. oh, asking it? a lot, honestly.
5: Uh, like the Aaron Sorkin walk and talk
4: down I'd the
3: hallway, pass a piece of way. paper
2: kind of thing. Mm. Walk with me. Yeah. That's yeah. what I do during hangouts.
3: So I'm a total mouth breather even when I'm just sitting down. So I could only imagine <laughs> being in a hangout and be like, oh, yeah. Oh. So, yeah. like yeah. I, yeah, I get s-
2: winded just dragging Trello cards around. Right. So that's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that seems like a lot. That seems like a lot to ask. Okay, so 60%. Yeah,
1: 60%. And thank you, David, uh, for your answer at Toon Army Captain. Pro, unless the treadmiller falls with great hilarity, in which case their behavior is permitted.
2: Okay. All right. I like that. Yeah. Anytime you can have like a wacky wipeout during a meeting, that's encouraged.
1: I haven't seen any in this office, which I'm really surprised.
2: No. Nobody just like eats it. Oh, no, treadmill desks. We do have treadmill Uh, desks. But nobody Uh, eats it during a meeting. Not that we've seen
4: Be safe Those things are dangerous I've never seen anybody use it I had one meeting This past week With someone on the treadmill
2: Mm -hmm. So shout
4: out to my colleague Brian Totally caught you doing it
2: Was he Did he sound winded? No He he was present
4: He was present It was great What was his speed And incline
3: Because I feel like what you have to disclose center. that. That's how you have to disclose it. Like, you're yeah. like, by the way, I'm on a, on a street level 1.0 incline, six miles per hour. Mm.
2: It's a downhill.
4: Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> a negative <laughs> incline. I'm <laughs> just coasting while we do this. Don't mind me.
4: You know, but actually, now that you say that, I didn't actually see the treadmill. Mm. He could have just been walking at a desk. Walking in place? Possibly. That's definitely not allowed. That
2: would be sociopathic. If you yeah. saw, like, a colleague... Just, just jogging in place during a conference call, you'd be like, whoa, that's." I'd call HR.
3: Can you walk in place? That's like a physical feat.
2: That's, that's uh, Mar- marching. marching.
3: Marching. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. can.
2: Yeah, it's walking. That counts. Yeah. It's walking in There place.
4: was movement. How about that?
2: Yeah. Okay. All right. That's disturbing. But uh, I think about like marathoners have that like gel or whatever, that like, goo that they eat while, mm-hmm. they're, <laughs> while they're running. <laughs> And you're like, you're like two hours into a conference call and somebody's just like, hold on a second. I got to knock this back yeah, real quick. Yeah. <laughs> it's vanilla bean goo. And then the, they're like, "Oh right. They're doing
3: it while they're like mid-sentence because yeah. they don't stop. No, you're no, no. Like... You
2: can't. Yeah. You can't stop. So speaking of delicious things. Uh-oh. Uh,
4: candy corn. Candy corns. We, we've got to move on to this.
2: We do. We, we gotta do. got to know. Let me frame the question properly here. The reckoning we're having here is about whether candy corn is delicious or disgusting. On the pro side, this is people saying, uh, this is certainly edible. I think that's the strongest argument you can make. <laughs> On the con side, these are waxy devil kernels. I think that's obviously the most rational view that we can have on this. I can be super biased, right? Because I'm not like the real host, right? Okay. So I'm going to just do, I'm just going to like stack the deck here a little bit. What we're going to ask you to do is you post your answer to Twitter using the hashtag Stack Overflow Podcast with either pro, pro Candy Corn, or con, the right answer, which (laughs) is that you're against Candy Corn. Just to sort of prep people's arguments, does anybody here want to talk about their sort of, their feelings? I know we're not going to get to definitive answers. Do we have?
4: I am super pro. <gasps> Me too. I'm
2: like, oh, my, oh wow. Really? Wow. Jen, why,
3: why are you pro? Because I think it's the same reason why I like Twizzlers. I just like, it's like chewing. Like, I don't know. It's a consistency. It's like glue. I never ate glue as a kid. <laughs> and mm. I wouldn't because it's like not flavored well. But like candy corn is like, you can just have like a few pieces. It's not yeah, like tactile, chips. Tactile aspects. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, okay. it's portable and like great some of the time. It's like JavaScript.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Booze. No, that's a good one. Yeah. All, All out. right. We'll out. We'll, out. we'll yeah. out. I think it's like where there's originals. Like there's some chance you leave a tooth behind, but on the other hand,
3: uh. no, candy corn's too soft to lose a tooth. Is it? Yeah.
2: Maybe I've been having less... You've
3: been probably eating like stale stale They do corns. get old. candy corn.
2: They do get
5: old. They don't go bad because there's arm. nothing or organ- yeah. yeah. there's no organic they material good to begin with. Right. You want yeah.
3: like a freshly harvested candy
2: corn. <clears throat> There's mm. also
3: different kinds, like
2: Are there candy cobs. To, they have one with a candy chocolate corn layer comes? on the bottom, I think, with Indian leaves and corn, and
4: wow. it's called Indian corn.
2: That's racist.
4: There's also reindeer corn for Christmas. It's red and green. There is Cupid corn for Valentine's Day. Mm.
2: Freedom, corn for Valentine's Day. Mm. freedom
4: corn for Fourth of July.
2: No, I'm not making these up. These things actually. Thing. These so, things freedom actually exist. corn was originally French corn, but then people yeah. changed the name. <laughs> this
5: sounds like what marketers would call an attempt at brand extension. Is that? what
2: all of these different yeah, holidays. Yeah, but they're like if we get one other holiday, we've got it made. Yeah. And
3: I bet you like all the other kinds of candy corn is just another coating of a different color wax 100%. above the candy corn. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But this thing is like you're not going to get Memorial Day corn going. Like that's not happening for you right. and like just <laughs> right. leave it alone. We
4: could make it happen.
2: No. Stop I trying to make I think a
5: holiday has to have colors, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. Right. But even like 4th of July you're going to have hot dogs. You're not going to be like, "Wow, it's just like have a whole bunch of recolored candy corn." I think they should go for like Arbor Day. It's wide open. Close to Halloween.
3: Abraham Lincoln
2: corn. Link, His birthday, Link Corn. <laughs> Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. There we go.
1: I'm already starting to get that weird, itchy feeling from thinking about the taste of the candy corn. Okay, it's...
2: should we leave it there and let people vote <laughs> using hashtag Stack Overflow Podcast? You can also chime in on that same hashtag with your suggestions of future proposals for the Constitution as you have your ideas spring to mind. So don't be shy in sharing those. From there, I think it is time for us to talk to our guest from the other side of the world, Leon Young from Cogniz Labs. Caitlin, let's go to you.
4: Thanks, Anil. Leon is the founder and CEO of Cogniz, a platform anyone can use to create sophisticated educational apps, which is launching in early 2018. He also founded 2&2, an award-winning educational games company. Thank you for joining us, Leon.
0: An absolute pleasure.
4: So, Leon, you've been building computer games for quite a while now. Can you tell us how you got started?
0: Yeah, probably since before any of you were alive, basically. It goes back to when I was around 12 years old. I think I was a fairly maladjusted 12-year-old who perhaps wasn't enjoying school a great deal. And I was very lucky in those days, and we're talking 1982 at this point, to be in a school that had an early multi-user mini computer. And that was really where I kind of found my salvation. Someone taught me to write a three-line program And then that was kind of it and got completely hooked. And this was the days of the early sort of 8-bit home computers. And so got one of those a year later, taught myself to machine code, started building simple video games. They were pretty crappy, but people would actually buy them that I found. And so started a mail order business. Within about a year, I had 20 other developers working for me and were selling these rather questionable games mail order. Yeah, and it just sort of went from there. So it was kind of something that was always in me, something that I was always going to do.
4: I know that you've also been, in addition to games and loving that, you've been really focused on online learning since the late 90s. Yeah. What's been the most exciting changes you've seen since then in online learning?
0: Oh, so much. I find the whole ed tech scene, it's often quite a frustrating area to be in because I think as far as the application of software goes, we're kind of late to the party and we've had 20 years of you know, relatively simplistic use of software as a way of distributing content, as a way of doing assessment, but actually using the technology to drive engagement, to drive understanding, better learning outcomes is something that not many people have delved into yet. And so that's really our area of interest. And this is where the intersection of games comes in. So games and how the brain works are the things that are really interesting to us. And, you know, that's kind of a nascent area. People are just starting to understand how to tap into things like neuroplasticity through more interactive experiences. And so that's, I think, going to be the really exciting thing over the next five to 10 years. Yeah,
4: and games are obviously a very clear way of interacting with that. Where else, aside from that, do you see edtech lagging that you really want to see it catch up?
0: For me, it's really about understanding how humans think about what interests us, how you create engagement, how you create memory, how you create long-term understanding, and so I think that's the whole scene. You know, the last ten years has been all about MOOCs, all about content management and publishing, and all of that stuff has its place. But until people start to really apply what's happening in the science, and I should say this is an issue that is not one that is just in ed tech. This is an issue in education that we have an education system where largely what we're doing in classrooms is the same thing we were doing 200 years ago. You know, it's starting to change a little bit, but the model really hasn't caught up with where the science is around how learning occurs and how the brain works. So, I think that's a whole untapped area.
5: I'd love to hear more about specifics there. So tell us about what you've learned about, say, neuroplasticity. Has it found its way into your software or into your games?
0: Yes, absolutely. I guess the big thing is, and the thing that's counterintuitive for people, is the thing that you need to do is work the brain hard. So what we want to do is create neural pathways that are thick neural pathways that last. And most of our study techniques don't really do that. So if I can give you an example, we all went through that experience at at school or college where we crammed the night before for an exam. Okay, so we recite information, we revise information, and the next day you go into the exam and you remember it. But can you remember any of that information now? Or could you remember it even three months after the exam? Probably not. And the reason for that is that when you first learn information, you only get a thin neural pathway. And what you have to do is actually wait for a little forgetting to occur. So you should learn the information, wait a little while, go back and revise the information at the point where you find it difficult, where your brain has to work hard. And that tells your brain to create a thicker neural pathway that won't get pruned, that won't get deleted. But the problem is those types of things don't feel natural to us. In actual fact, they're much more efficient. It takes much less time to learn like this, but you know, we still all tend to go back to the classic method of sitting there for hours revising stuff because it feels like it's working even though it doesn't drive the direct outcome. So this is where software becomes really useful because we can have software that optimizes learning experience to start to use these rules around neuroplasticity to get the long-term memory outcome.
4: How does Cogniz bridge that gap? How can you help using that platform?
0: Okay, so the way Cogniz works, just very simply, we have units of content. We have what we call templates, which can be anything from a traditional delivery of learning to a 3D video game. And we have something called the cognition engine. And the cognition engine is that bit of AI that pumps the content into the interaction. And that is tracking exactly when it's given information to you. Have you understood the information at that time? When should we revise that information to get the optimum learning outcome? So it becomes this dynamic interaction with you through the game or through the other templated activity.
5: And would you say this approach is good for sort of any topic of learning? Do you think it's broadly applicable? Do you think there are areas of learning where this approach, you know, has shown itself to be stronger?
0: The one place where you can see, you know, a number of vendors using approaches similar to this are languages, because languages are something that will obviously there's high commercial demand. People want to learn foreign languages and it's simple to apply to things like learning vocabulary. But what is interesting for us is that we built this structure for this platform, Cogniz, really looking at that sort of memory-based learning. So looking at things like, you know, kids at school learning maths and science, looking at languages. And then what we found is that people have been able to use this framework for things like learning soccer skills, developing emotional intelligence in children, doing business simulations, we're doing things around mild cognitive impairment for the elderly, so how we slow down the onset of dementia and Alzheimer's, all kinds of things, which to be honest, when we first started designing the system, we didn't think of, but we've just found that it applies very, very broadly. So when I hear neuroplasticity,
5: I sort of think to myself, we usually talk about this in the context of aging, that we learn better when we're young, and just neurologically, we get worse at learning. But I feel like I've read lately that maybe that's not as true as we thought. I wonder if you have any insights about, you know, sort of the aging process or what you've learned from your software. Has it shown you that, you know, aging makes learning harder or not so much? What have you found?
0: It's probably a bit early for us to be able to draw that inference from the software. What the research shows generally is certainly neuroplasticity is happening your whole life. And you can think of it. Much like physical exercise, it's a use it or lose it type thing. So the more you exercise your brain, the more you do engage in the active learning, the younger your brain becomes, very simple way to put it. So absolutely children, their brains are highly plastic, they have much more gray matter, and the brain basically It deletes a lot of this stuff as you get older. So, there's nothing you can do that's going to make you learn like a five year old. If you have children or if you watched a five year old, you can see that they're just testing the world around them constantly and constantly learning. But there's certainly just by engaging and learning constantly, you'll certainly slow the aging process of the brain. Very interesting.
4: So, who else is in the space who's doing this well, either in ed tech or in gaming?
0: I haven't seen anyone who's coming at it quite the same way that we are. You know, there have been memory-based learning products that when we look at them, we can see that they're doing the right thing. I think Memorize is quite a nice platform out of Europe. You know, what the Duolingo guys are doing is really interesting. I think, though, a lot of products that are out there at the moment, they've been very much trying to use this sort of intelligence, but having front ends that are a little more than flashcards. So, you know, the next stage of development is how you take these algorithms and apply them in something that's a bit more compelling and a bit more interesting.
5: So I see you have something called the cognition engine and there's some ML involved there. It sounds like, you know, an engine that learns to write code, so to speak, if I understand it correctly. Is that a fair characterization? And our audience here is fairly geeky. So I'd love to hear a bit more about what that engine does and what ML does.
0: Okay. So the cognition engine is a little bit simpler than that. So that's really about rolling where content is put into these templates and optimizing the delivery of that and just tracking where the learner is on that kind of learning curve. I think what might be interesting to your listeners is our position perhaps on where we think software is going generally. So Cogniz to date has been a platform that's really like a framework and a set of back-end services where developers have been able to build these types of educational solutions. Where we're taking Cogniz with the new version that we're releasing in a few months is that you're going to be able to build one of these very sophisticated learning or behavior change apps through a web browser without any coding because we've been able to reduce everything down to these simple components that you can plug and play together. And I think that's the trend that's really interesting to me as a software developer getting away from you know all the manual work, the 80% of the work that is you know writing reams and reams of code to do the same old thing over and over again. So with Cogniz, what we've tried to do is create a platform where with the new version, anyone can come in, they can create their app, they can either publish it in our ecosystem or publish it direct out to the app store. There's still absolutely a role for developers. So if they want to take it further, there's an SDK and developers working in Unity can build new templates and things to go into the front end. But for a lot of applications, they won't have to do that. They can simply go into a library in a marketplace where they can pull these components together and publish out an app and you can see That, you know, this trend is already happening in other areas, certainly with, you know, Microsoft Power Apps and that sort of thing in the general enterprise software space. And we're trying to bring that into education and behavior change.
4: I know that this topic is something that you love talking about in general, about how machine learning and automation, it's replacing a lot of the work that programmers have been doing for years. Cogniz, for example, it's, you know, WYSIWYG editor, as you're saying. So does this mean that developers should start looking for new careers now? (laughs) Uh, Are they going to be replaced in, say, five years, 10? I kind of have a bet on this.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I'm not a betting man. Who knows what the trajectory is? I think the interesting thing is if you're into software development, if you love coding, you either need to be the best guy on the block, you need to be at that elite level where you're always going to be in demand, or you need to take yourself up the value chain. So I don't think anyone should stop learning to code soon because I think the thought processes, the problem solving that you develop out of doing that is always going to be relevant. But the days of having a room full of programmers, you know, building basic building blocks and things like that, I think we can see the end of that on the horizon. I don't know where AIs will sit in there. I think that's really interesting. You know, the idea that a business analyst can, a problem to an AI and have that AI produce code. I'm interested in that and how quickly that will happen. I'm not sure.
5: Very cool. Yeah, I do think that's really interesting. I know Google has this notion. I don't know if it's more of a marketing term called auto ML. It's basically ML that writes ML models. So maybe we might see something like that. Part of me sort of says that the ML, the AIs won't write code for us, but they will obviate the need to write code, perhaps. So they'll create models for which we used to have to write code and maybe now we don't.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree. I think it's just going to be, you know, cutting out the 80% and allowing us to concentrate on the really interesting and challenging 20%.
4: Excellent. Before we move on, where should our audience go if they want to learn more about you or about cogniz?
0: Just go to cogniz.com. The new version, as I said, is coming out early next year. So we're really looking for people who want to take part in a closed beta program for that. So if interested, just fill in a contact form and we'll add you to the list.
4: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Leon. Really appreciate you joining us.
0: An absolute pleasure. Thank you.
4: Back to you, Neil
0: Thank you. And especially thank you to Leon for
2: thinking about how education and coding are evolving. This is a perfect chance for us to start talking a little bit also about tools that help enable us to create the things we want to create. One of our sponsors for the podcast this time around is DigitalOcean. And the team at DigitalOcean just launched Spaces. It's this beautiful, simple object storage service. And basically, if you're a developer, you want a simple way to store and serve tons of data, Spaces is that solution. DigitalOcean thinks developers who try Spaces are going to love it, so they're making trying it easy. New or even existing DigitalOcean customers, that's you. Basically, everyone is either a new or existing customer. You can get two free months' trial of Spaces just by going to do.co slash stackoverflow. They have a cool domain for DigitalOcean, do.co slash stackoverflow. Check out Spaces.
4: So, along with being our fabulous host this week, we invited Anil and Jen to talk about how you build inclusive online communities. For the past few weeks on this podcast, if you've been following along, we've discussed how we're trying to improve this at Stack Overflow with things like our mentor experiment and with our new DAG team. Today, we wanted to chat with you both about how you're building an inclusive community with Glitch. So, first off, what is Glitch and why does inclusivity matter to your
2: community? Jen, what's your version of What is Glitch?
4: Oh, I think it's like our
3: company's universal idea of it. We call it the friendly community where you can build the app of your dreams. It's a web IDE, so a place in the browser that you can write code and it will auto deploy your apps. But along with that, we have a community of users and ourselves who have created apps that you can view the source of full stack. So you can view node files, which is pretty awesome. And you can remix or copy those apps and start building upon it to create something that you've always wanted to do with ease
2: yeah i think a lot of what we emphasize with glitch is this what drew a lot of us to coding in the first place that sense of almost self-expression that you're creating something that you had in mind and i think especially you know i'm i've been coding a long time i think it feels like it got harder like there's just a lot more barriers and like i'm going to set up a dev environment and i'm going to configure all this stuff and i have to you know figure out a hard way to set up a server and it all gets in the way of, but I just wanted to build this thing. I want to share with people. And I think that was what so much was especially loved about the web. And Glitch is really sort of returning to that idea that you can get something up and running pretty quickly and then iterate on it. And that's how we learn. And learning is something we do as brand new coders. And this learning is something we do as somebody that's been coding for decades because there's always something new. And so to be a, a good place for that exploration, that learning, that creativity. We think it's important to the, the ecosystem, actually in a way that's very parallel to Stack Overflow. And you have to have a place to learn and to, to learn from others. And In our case, it's remixing as opposed to questions and answers, but it's still a place that you see how other coders think, and that's really powerful. And then that idea that you can just put your idea up and get people to respond to it and feel like they're reacting or telling you here's something that you could try out or you can you know raise your hand and ask for help and have them pair program alongside with you in real time, that too has felt like a leap forward, actually in the same way that like in Google docs, you know, you just sort of edit a file with somebody and it's nice to have somebody around, even just in the sense that there's another person that cares about what you're doing. But I think all of that is really grounded in, it's only possible to be creatively expressing yourself or capturing your ideas or being vulnerable enough to ask for help if you feel like you're in a place that's safe. And so, you know, the mandate or glitch at a functional level, separate from all the technology and building, you know, We're doing all this magic of like spinning up containers and getting a node stack running instantly and, you know, real-time editing and all the transforms for the content and all the stuff that you have to do to make that work is great and interesting technology, but none of it matters if people don't feel like if I put my idea up here, people will actually think about it thoughtfully and be respectful of me and the way they give their feedback and I'm not going to be harassed or abused for who I am or, you know, the way I present myself to the world.
3: Yeah, like I said, like the technology, the magic is like fairly new, but the problems that we're solving and those solutions at like a more abstract level are not new. Viewing source is not a new concept, Mm -hmm. but the web has evolved and web development has evolved in a way where it's harder to do that. And the friendly communities that a lot of my friends who are mostly women and myself, those communities like Neopets and LiveJournal, like, (laughs) don't exist or are completely different from what they used to be. And so at Glitch, we're harkening back to those times and trying to create a space where people who are new to development especially have what we had when we were learning
2: code. Yeah, and I think there are still some modern communities where people share what they create mm-hmm. and they feel safe doing it, but we don't associate them as being about technology or code. I look at, like, Wattpad is a great community around writing fiction, primarily fan fiction. And it's really, really supportive and people build audiences and critique each other's work in thoughtful ways. I look at Gravelry for knitters where they're showing off what they have created and, you know, you don't really have to worry about like being flamed for your choice of yarn, which is really nice. And I think of those as these sort of inspirations of, and even to some degree, you know, SoundCloud, right? It's like every time I go and listen to somebody's mixtape or a new song that they put out and they can be a big name or they can be somebody that's not yet discovered and they just happen to want to express themselves through music those feel like the best things on the internet. You yeah. know, you, you know, you feel like that's like, wow, I could do this. And even if I'm not doing it, what they did is inspiring to me. And it's amazing that we have that for knitting, for fan fiction, for music, and we don't have it for coding and websites, like the things that made the internet go in the first place.
3: Yeah. My favorite thing with SoundCloud is when you're listening and the little comments pop up and they're mm-hmm. always like, people going nuts about a drop or yeah, like, yeah, or, or yeah. like a solo. Yeah. And they're like, this drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I want someone to like see something that I'm building and be like, this is sick.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean that sense of like when I would make a vine or I would like do a Periscope stream or something and see the little hearts float across the screen. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess that happens on Facebook live now too. The sense that there are people there and they like what I'm doing enough to show some important and come in a real time. and And I feel like, yeah, if I, have a particularly elegant solution to a coding problem, or it's the first time I got the API to work that I've been hacking away on for a couple of hours. Like if my friends can come in and be like, good job. For me, at least the way I work and the way I'm used to creating things in a sort of social environment with friends or people that share my interests, that would be liberating. So I think that's the way we're heading with Glitch. I mean, we're very early, like we're still in beta and we're still just getting the paint dry for people to come in. But I think it's something that, Seems like it should exist in the world.
3: And so far, it's been great.
2: Yeah. I yeah, love, I love our users. Google. Yeah. 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 I mean, that is that that thing that's really motivating. It's like, it's technically hard. I mean, we're a very small company. Like, Fog Creek is a couple dozen people and the Glitch team, I would say, is smaller than the team that does Google Doodles at Google. Mm-hmm. It's a really small team and brilliant, but like, there's only so much you can do. And so you're you're pushing really hard to get it all done. And having a community that every day is like, here's a fun art project or I'm an activist and I made this site that's useful for this cause I'm advocating about. Or The things that we used to do, I think, early in the web and then sort of faded away as it got really hard. And people are like, well, you can't launch something unless it has like an Android version and an iOS version. And, you know, you've done it all in the latest stack and you've done X, Y, and Z. And it's like, that's a lot to ask for somebody when they just have a little idea.
5: It sounds like you're describing coding here more, the word craft comes to mind
2: Mm, you know i won't say
5: hobbyist exactly but craft where you kind of do it for yourself and if you get some appreciation you can show off this thing Mm -hmm. you can get a little collaboration so i think to myself okay naively how is this not github now i know yeah i know how it's not different but if Mm -hmm. you're unfamiliar yeah this sounds like an open source community but it's really not
2: yeah it's interesting it's similar in some ways and different in a lot of ways and i think one of the things is We talk a lot about, you know, you build the app of your dreams and I think it's sort of this labor of love. And what's interesting is that intersects sometimes with what we do for work, right? So it's not just weekend projects or after hours, like sometimes the code we write, we love and we're proud of it. And the stuff we're building is something that we think expresses ourselves as well as being, you know, what pays the bills. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's, this is just the thing that I think I have this weird idea and I don't know if anybody else will like it, but let me create it. And, you know, I think GitHub was an amazing leap forward and then Git you know, as a technology it was an amazing leap forward in terms of being a better model of code collaboration. One of the things I think people forget about the design of distributed version control, whether it was Git or Mercurial, that whole wave that came in was forking. used to be this really radical social act. It was the sort of the schism, right? It's like Martin Luther tacking up the theses on the door and you're like, I'm out of here. And it's like, that It doesn't always have to be that dramatic. Like, can we just like try some different directions? Meanwhile, if you make a spreadsheet and you try a different version of the formulas, like that variation is zero cost. Like, sure, just type in some other cells and see what that other, you know, iteration looks like. And what I think Git and, you know, the technologies around eventually GitHub enabled were making very, very low cost to fork and to try a different variation, a different, you know, scenario. And that's really great for creativity. You want to be able to try. Let me try that again. Let me me see what this works like. But as I think in particular, GitHub almost became synonymous with Git and became the really, you know, the, the process by which a lot of communities ran. And that is a different thing than I'm experimenting and trying stuff, right? So when you have like the Linux kernel being developed on GitHub, that's, you know, it is among many other things, a collaboration between giant multi-billion dollar companies to create a piece of infrastructure they all rely on. That is a different set of requirements than a place to play with ideas with your friends. Mm-hmm. And I would totally understand why GitHub would optimize for the former over the latter because they got to pay the bills. And and it's also useful to the world. Like It's good to be able to enable that. But it comes at the expense of the sense of play, experimentation, joy, and discovery. That I think is where a lot of creative energy is tapped into.
3: And as someone who does a lot of creative coding and has tons of ideas and wants to build something every day... Glitch removes the barrier of deploying my stuff. Whereas on GitHub, which I have a lot of stuff on GitHub, all my projects are, even a bunch of my Glitch apps I've exported to GitHub, you can clone it, but then you have to figure out how to get it online. And that's like a whole other, I guess, like job, essentially. DevOps is a job and it's a whole other part of tech to deal with. And that's where a lot of creativity sort of dwindles where it's like, I have an idea, I want to build it. And then I look at a blank screen and I'm like, Oh, I don't have time for this. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to spend an entire day deploying, like, to AWS and then just to do, like, a <laughs> static page to show off to people.
2: Like, yeah, my knowledge set didn't keep up. I code mostly recreationally now. Like, I wish I could contribute more to our products, but I'm not good enough anymore. And, you know, I'm a front-end coder, and that's what I've always been, and that's what I love, is you can see what you do. And, you know, I'm old enough that, like, I used to deploy by FTPing, and then, like, that was great. It was really immediate, and you could just see it. And it got a little more elaborate and a little more elaborate and you start to, you know, build this process around. And then, of course, you have your, these days, your build scripts and your environment for, you know, actually creating stuff that will run in the browser. And eventually it ends up being this whole process just to do, I'm fixing a typo or I'm going to update this version of this dependency or I'm going to do this other thing. And you're just like, but I just want to put this idea up. And especially like a static page got hard. Like that was mm-hmm. the breaking point for me where it's like it's still possible to get you know, a GitHub hosted static page up and get a domain on it. But it's like, it feels a lot harder than it should be.
3: I mean, I'm guilty of this. When I start a project, I start setting it up and automating deployment and build as if it were a consulting project where there are 10 people (laughs) on my team and we're being paid $10,000 a week to build it. And it's really just like a pixel art thing. Yeah,
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a joke site I made a couple of weeks ago, which was essentially like has my Equifax account been hacked kind of thing after the leak. I mean, the joke is it's a static site that just says yes. But the thing for me is like, I used to build that stuff like this sort of single serving sites back 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when you still would have like a shared hosting account and you, you know, FTP a static page up and it wouldn't matter who linked to it. Like it could be on, you know, Reddit or back then, I guess, dig or whatever. And it wouldn't matter because like it's a static page. And then as things got harder, I'd be like, well, that'd be a funny joke for like 45 minutes. You know, like you tweet it out and people laugh and then they move on. And I'm like, I'm not going to do all that work for now. And then this Equifax site, like I had the idea, I remixed a static project on Glitch, which is just cloning an existing project. I edited the text because that's really the whole joke. And I tweaked the CSS and it was literally five minutes. And like if it had taken more than five minutes, I would have been like, I'm wasting my time. I have a job. I have a family. Like I should tend to them.
3: Jokes get unfunny within like a 10 minute period. Yeah,
2: exactly. And so like being able to do that, it was really powerful. But the other part of that was I didn't worry while I was creating it that somebody would be watching my profile, seeing me creating it under, you know, when it was in development and be like, I'm going to pounce on this guy and tear it apart because I don't like him. And I mean, on Twitter, like I have that and I'm lucky I have a big network there, but I could be like, I'm working through this idea and I'm going to have three tweets about it. I get one out and they're like, all right, let's get this guy. You know, And it's just like, you know what? There's no fun here for me. There's nothing, no joy. And even I see that with video streaming on sometimes on YouTube or Twitch versus on like Facebook live with friends. And I think it just depends on how you use your networks, but the broader the audience and most of those communities that are like not well managed, you know, I can be like, I have this issue I want to talk about. It's really important to me. And they'll be like, this guy, you know, I don't like his shirt. All right. I'm not going to bother with that if they're just going to talk about this stuff that has nothing to do with the idea. And on glitch, I never feel vulnerable in that way while I'm creating something. And and it's very freeing because I can just think about the idea. And I think that's what we, want to preserve for everybody
4: Mm -hmm. oh how do you structure glitch with your community with any rules that you have or just how the site functions to keep that joy in coding
3: i think that the design has a big part to do with that it's a very friendly colorful cute looking interface and i think that gives you the message right away that this is going to be a fun time that you're about to embark on. And then you see all of the example apps that we have there and there's different icons, different faces of people. Some people recognize that someone, you know, one of the developers of react made an example app on the community site. They're like, cool, I'll start out with this. Or if you don't know any of those faces, you just know that there's a lot of people there building.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, sort of putting on my CEO hat, Jen is our community engineer for glitch. and, Part of her mandate is to make sure this is that friendly place and we defend and hold that line. So at an organizational level, I mean, to be really honest about it, to hire somebody who knows and understands and cares about that stuff and has it as part of their job responsibilities is essential. Because we could put whatever guidelines we want up on the site and, you know, you bury some bullet points somewhere and it's like, yeah, but nobody's job is to work on that. And I think to have somebody that is fluent in those issues and cares about them sincerely and is you know, evaluated on her job. Is it held
3: accountable? Yeah, Because that's like a thing that there is not much of in tech is accountability for behavior.
2: Yeah, and I think to that point, like if we had a serious, you know, abuse issue on the site, we would have that conversation and be like, wow, where did we fall down and what did we do wrong? And there would be somebody to own that conversation and Mm -hmm. to look into it. So I think it's not a fun answer, but like a person who is paid to look at community and give a damn about it, and be accountable for it is number one, like far and away, that's the biggest indicator of success versus failure on this. And then explicit policies, fluency. And I think part of this is like, you know, we have multiple people on our team who've been targeted by various groups on various networks, you know, for harassment or abuse. And I don't ever want to only have that be the way that people learn, but it is indispensable knowledge of actually being experienced and what it's like to go through that. And you anticipate things you would never think of. Like, I think GitHub's team didn't get for a long time that somebody might harass others by adding them to a project. It's very counterintuitive, right? Yeah. And until you've been through it and you can be like, oh, well, here is a project that is specifically maligning people of your background or your identity and I've added you to it so you have to see me saying something hateful about you or I've you know, published private information about you and I added you to a project where you could see that information and therefore you find out that I know this about you. Like, those are attack vectors that are real and have happened to people, happened to people I care about. And Happened
3: uh, to me. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, you know, I don't ever want it to, like I said, to be like, everybody has to go through that to know mm-hmm. it. But once you've been through it, and I've been through similar scenarios, you're like, I'm never letting this happen to anybody if I can at all prevent it.
3: Yeah. And the bar is really low, I think. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I always say that with everything. The bar is
2: super low. Yeah. Don't actively encourage abuse and reward it through your feedback systems. Yeah, Yeah.
3: exactly. And I think also a lot of platforms are like lacking transparency. Mm -hmm. Like with Equifax, we found out about that months after the fact that it actually happened. And, you know, I always end up saying this on this podcast because of capitalism. (laughs) <laughs> we all had to wait to hear about it. I wish Jay was here. <laughs> but when there is an issue, I mean, I'm ready to, like, have a difficult conversation and mm-hmm. be transparent about what we're doing because again, it's so key to making sure that we have the space. Because I'm a huge user of Glitch myself, and I want <laughs> that safe community for myself along with everybody else that I know and don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, you go to Glitch.com, and what you see there on the homepage is an app built in Glitch. So we live in it. I start my day by looking at that and that sense that we live in it and we're trying to build a culture like within the team that builds Glitch but also in the community that uses it of saying this is a, one of our top priorities that we care about. It's counterintuitive. We're very lucky where we're independent and we're you know privately held and we have sort of time to build products and let them bake over time. And part of what I try to do is give the team space to where we're not growth hacking. And saying, like, we are going to grow at any cost and, like, get those numbers up on engagement because you can let in, you know, any horrible community you want to name and get some engagement by having people fight with them.
3: There are plenty of people out there and a lot of them are bad. And if you want a lot of people, you can welcome those bad people in.
2: Yeah. And to be able to say, I care about us having people who are ecstatic and happy and thrilled to be on Glitch to the point where they tell others, you got to try this. And when they're there, they're creating stuff. And one of the things they could echo about why they like it is, I feel happy and comfortable. And I don't think they would articulate it as safe, but I think that's the underlying. Like, you're not going to ever feel happy and comfortable somewhere unless you're safe. And so that's the predicate to sort of the, the ability to feel joy when using some kind of technology.
4: You are mentioning a few relatively smaller communities that are either young or they're intentionally small mm-hmm. doing this very well. Have you seen any larger communities that are really tackling this problem?
2: Yeah. I mean, to be clear, Wattpad is big. Like, Ravelry is big. Like, I mean, they're not Stack Overflow big, but Wattpad is millions and millions and millions of people. And so I think they fly under the radar because they're not the things that are used by, like, people in the tech trade press, you know? So, like, I don't think there's a big overlap between Wattpad writers and TechCrunch writers. But, like, if we were as big as Wattpad, I'd be thrilled. I think that'd be a big, interesting business for Glitch.
3: I guess the our issue is that tech culture is not great. And so we're sort of <laughs> climbing an uphill like mm-hmm. fight there. But I've just started getting involved in Ravelry. I'm working with one of my coworkers on a side project that she wanted to get into using the Ravelry API. And so I've not done much knitting or crocheting, but it's really, really awesome to see. And we've been talking to one of the founders of the platform. And it's interesting to see... You never think that there's any, like, drama in knitting or crafting, but there definitely Uh, is. There definitely is, you know, but you don't see that in that platform. So I'm trying to learn a lot from them to be like, okay, Ravelry's been around for a while. Like, how do we keep our space like that? People
2: always think everything – oh, that could never be contentious. Like, my wife helped launch a site called Serious Eats, which is a big food community site, and they used to have a very active forum – many years and people are like, oh, I bet nobody fights there. And it's like, if you think people don't have strong opinions about the right way to make a turkey at Thanksgiving, (laughs) like you are lost because everything, I mean, you think of people outside of tech are like, how could people possibly argue over programming languages? Why would they ever get upset about that? And you're like, have you met a coder? Yeah. This is a thing. This is a big thing. And and anything people are passionate about, they're going to have strong feelings about. And also, especially I think in the current, you know, cultural moment, political moment, You can be like, you know, here's how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And people are going to devolve into ranting about politics. You know, they're just it's on their mind and and everything is a projection of identity, whether it's political or social identity. And so there's sort of like when you say, you know, the jelly should be on the top of the sandwich, the peanut butter on the bottom. That's an attack on who I am. All right, let's dial it down. Let's make a place where we can talk about the the fundamentals.
3: Yeah. And every community, I guess, knows like those certain points that you shouldn't touch because you're going to just open up a can of work. Like, you know, semicolons are not that important.
2: (laughs) I can't Should have let that slide? I can't, yeah. <laughs> wow, going to go Yeah, this is actually one of those pauses you're going to hear in podcasts when they edit out an argument <laughs> the last hear one like hour. You hear elevator music. Exactly.
3: Yeah, exactly. Please stand by.
2: We're going to keep it moving. Yeah, but it is <laughs> something that we are still learning and honestly for me like I'm, you know, being a shill saying it but it's true. I'm on the board of Stack Overflow. I have been a user from day one and seeing what Joel and Jeff built at the beginning and then... All along all I think they got so much right. And that's not to say it's perfect. I mean, I, I have no shortage of criticisms about how we can improve, but Stack is a big, big site. It's millions of people. And there are no roving bands of Nazis on Stack Overflow. And that is a triumph because everybody seems to think that's inevitable when you have a big community. And it's like, it ain't. Like, I don't care what you see on Reddit. I don't care what you see on Twitter. Like, that is not some innate part of human nature that you get enough people together and that's going to happen. Because, like, I've been to, you know, baseball games with tens of thousands of people in the stadium and football games with tens of thousands of people in the stadium. And there are not, like, roving bands of Nazis running around, at least visibly. And so I think that's something where, you're like, it's not some intrinsic part of what happens when you get lots of people together. Most of the times I've been in any venue in physical space where there are thousands and thousands of people together, they're joyously happy. They're rooting for their team or they're listening to a band they love or they're cheering for some event that they like. And the default state of large groups of people interacting with each other is to be looking at something creative or expressive and being happy about it. And the only place we think that norm inverts is is online. And I'm like, eh, that's bad design.
4: So obviously there are many things that we're doing right at Stack Overflow. Mm-hmm. What else would you want to see change? If there were one or two things that you would change tomorrow, what would you want? I know that. There are a lot of women
3: that would say the same thing. And I don't think it's an issue at Stack Overflow, but tech culture is a start. Like your community doesn't have a bunch of roving Nazis and misogynists, but that's not yet. You know, you think (laughs) like, when is that going to happen? Most sites do. Because Twitter used to be a great space for me and I wouldn't be where I'm at today without Twitter. But lot, it feels a lot different now than it did 10 years ago, like when I joined I feel like Stack Overflow needs to do more outreach to underrepresented people in the community to remind us that you're there actively working to create a safe space for us to answer questions. Mm -hmm. I think that you are, but I'm a lot closer to the company than most of my peers are.
2: Yeah, I do think making it visible, the work that goes in, Mm -hmm. right? Because moderation is something that happens through the community and it's not magic It's not elves. It's people doing work because they care about each other and it works pretty well. And showing the work, I think would be really valuable because I do think if you're somebody that's in a vulnerable community and you say like, all these people are doing this work to make sure that I'm safe here. That's great. It's a really nice feeling, you know? And so I think it would, you know, deepen my connection as a user to feel like these people are looking out for me because it is happening. And that's one of those things where like the balance I think historically has been. Ironically, security through obscurity. Right? You sort of you don't show the workings behind the curtain, even though there's meta and these places people can go if they really want to dive in on the site proper. While you like classic flow of like you Google an error message, you end up on the site, you get your answer, and you go back to your text editor, or your IDE, and and you're on your way. In that flow, you would never know somebody was looking out for you to make sure not just that you got the answer, but that this is a place that you could go for answers. And I don't know what the answer to that. There's a, there's a design challenge there, which is that. You know, you never want to tell somebody like, Look how hard we're working, right? If Google was like, It took thousands of people to write this search answer, like you'd be like, So what? But a little bit of a glimpse into like, we want this to be a place for you and you're welcome here and we're working to make sure you're safe here. I think those things go a long way for everybody. There's nobody that doesn't want to hear that. It doesn't matter whether you identify as somebody that's like on the margins or vulnerable or not. There's nobody who's like, Wow, I wish this place were more dangerous and unpleasant. And then there are people who are like, I'm a contrarian and I think that would be cool. And you're like, Well That's not what we prioritize. This isn't the place for you. Like find a place for yourself because that actually is how things work. And then I think, you know, very famously, I think this was more true in the past, but it's still somewhat true. You know, there's the hostility around question asking that people feel as part of what stack is. And I think, you know, I have a little bit of a glimpse inside from being associated with stack. But the thing I see is that the perception out in the world is if I ask a question on stack overflow, I'll probably get my hand slapped at least the first time. And I think it's gotten a lot better. I think the process has gotten better. Things don't just get closed with like, that's a dupe, you know, there's a much more humane process, but the perception stays for a long time. You know, and you see this like in much more egregious examples like Twitter, where like, I think they are actually probably turning the corner on fighting their abuse problem, but nobody gives them any credit. And I'm like, I don't blame them. Like, give me 10 years of getting it right after 10 years of getting it wrong. And then maybe we'll have a conversation. I think it's Dax's case because it wasn't so egregious in the negative case. It'll be quicker to turn around, but for people to trust, wow, like this is a place I could ask something. I think that'd be really positive. I think the other part is that it's so efficient, like questions get answered so fast. And so many questions have already been asked, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're often a duplicate. I think that is something that's hard for people. There's no sort of entry point into, well, here's a place where I could participate and I could do something. I know the team is working on stuff like channels going forward. I'm like, that gives me hope and excitement about future directions where, like, there's a place that I can participate. And again, I say this as, like, a user from day one and, you know, somebody who cares deeply about the company. And I'm like, I don't have that much to contribute right now. I don't have a way to participate. So I might have good feelings about I trust this information, but I'd love to be able to just feel like I'm doing something good.
3: Yeah, I agree. And I think... I mean, this is like a sad state of affairs. But ten years ago, hostility was looking on Stack Overflow and someone asking a JavaScript question, and someone being like, "This is how you do it, jQuery. Why don't you just use that?" Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that was hostility. Now hostility right. is like real. Hostility. Yeah, it's like threats. Yeah, yeah. yeah and exactly. I get I get a lot of people who are like, "Oh yeah, you know, I avoid Stack because it's hostile." And I ask them like, "What does hostility mean to you?" And they were just kind of like, "Oh, you know, it's like." very self-policing but i'm like well i feel like the moderation that self-policing is what is keeping the droves of nazis away yeah, yeah and now absolutely. that that has sort of come to our light of how powerful and like scary that is i think that our perceptions of some communities will change
2: yeah i think there's a lot of investment that the entire stack community the millions of people have made in being a positive place in those ways that people will now understand the value of and say wow if the trade-off was you know My jQuery question, I got an abrupt response. Yeah. And on the plus side, there's no, like, threats of violence in this place. Right. Like, okay, I'll take it. Like, that's fine. Like, that's a pretty good trade-off. And And even within that framework, still saying, well, we can still improve and be, you know, more welcoming and friendly to people that have, you know, more esoteric questions or whatever. I think that's something where we're watching that real closely on Glitch. I think others are watching and starting to understand there are really smart design decisions that, like I said, I think you go back to when it was. You know joel and jeff sort of spitballing an idea about what this site could be that was there from the beginning they were both deeply deeply thoughtful about that for me i don't think i'd ever been on the board of a big company before they asked me to join the board of stack overflow and i said well doesn't that usually you have like investors or venture capitalists and that's who's on the board and they're like well we want you to represent the community i mean at the time i thought oh that's unusual now i know that's incredibly unusual like that never Mm -hmm. happens And especially for me where I'm like, I mean, I joke about it. Like I I have been a professional coder, made a living being a programmer, but I also get to work around incredible coders. So I'm, you know, not being falsely modest and saying like, I'm not great at it anymore because I don't get to practice enough to be as good at it as as I would like to be. But to be a fairly casual coder and still be seen as somebody that has a place in the community, let alone in the company for stack is something I think speaks to the values of what the site is, what the community is. And, uh, and yet I don't know that that's the perception of an average casual coder or somebody who's newer to coding, who is a professional or somebody who is in one of the less visible realms of coding where we don't like not a hot startup, but like a company just happens to make software. I don't think they all know that's what Stack Overflow can be for them too. And I think that's the challenge that, you know, I would say as a fan, like all the other roles, just as a fan of the site of somebody that's gotten so much utility out of it, pretty much every day for the last 10 years that would be my like number one wish list item
3: yeah i think all open source communities also have this issue and so like with github i know a lot of people who are like oh i've created a project i want to open source it but i'm terrified of what's Mm going to happen once Mm -hmm. i hit that publish button yeah and so there are a lot of initiatives like your first pr and other projects have initiatives to have people make their first pull request so maybe like having some sort of like online event or something like that being like your first asking question. or answering your first question and making sure that it is a positive experience
2: yeah that there's a place for it the other thing that's interesting too is one of the reasons stack was so revelatory early on compared to the crappy stuff we had before it was like bad answers unpleasant people like unreliable information and disorganized like all this stuff and it was so effective so quickly that people forgot how bad it was before mm-hmm And I think actually GitHub is something similar, where he's like, I came up using no version control and using like Subversion and CVS and, you know, these terrible systems. And then you leap forward into like, I literally can't remember the last time a team I was working with substantially lost code. Like it's been years. And that used to be like my number one worry in managing a team. And it's gone from like top level fear to not even a concern. And so you forget, you forget the abject terror of not just somebody broke the build, but we have no way to get our app running for users right now.
4: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both. Really appreciate you being here today to talk about this.
2: Really glad to be. And thanks for bringing up the topic. It's really, really Mm -hmm. key.
4: Are we ready for some news?
2: I think it is time for the news. We are about to throw to Alana, but we can't do so without the important introduction that lets us know news is coming. Everybody get ready. Of what's happening
1: yesterday, Amazon announced Amazon Key, a service that allows Amazon couriers to open your front door and put your package inside your home. It requires an Amazon Cloud Cam as well as a compatible smart lock. The media is understandably skeptical, so, in an effort to make the process totally transparent, you can actually watch a live stream of your delivery. <laughs> uh, now, I'm just hoping that they go in and clean my apartment while they're dropping off my package, wow. clean it out, Amazon of all your Sweep. Stuff?
4: On Sweep.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Alexa, this house is a mess. And then somebody just comes in your front door and cleans it. Wait, what? Wait, say that. <laughs> that? Right? Would,
4: that would be amazing. Right? I like that idea. Yeah,
2: you tell your Echo, right? This is like nightmare dystopian scenario, right? Like, no, that's, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I think, think it's great, sounds great. As well. No, those aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I like dystopian society, so yeah. this is wonderful for me. Okay, yeah. good, good.
2: I just, like, I didn't see the Blade Runner sequel yet, but I'm pretty sure if you were in 1982, you're like, 35 years from now, they will revisit Blade Runner. And they're like, oh, well, probably you would tell a giant global corporation from which you buy everything that they're allowed to come into your home and give you products.
5: Right. Well, that's like the old joke. Like they they used to say, don't talk to anybody on the Internet and don't get into strangers' cars. Mm -hmm. Now you literally use the Internet to get into a stranger's car. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. like the fears about those things, they're reasonable. But this sounds like, you know, I don't think this is actually contrarian to say this. It sounds actually scary. But it'll probably be fine, and someday, for some people, they'll wonder how Mm. they could live without it, you know?
3: It sounds expensive. (laughs) And usually when new tech like this comes out, I try to think, like, is there an underprivileged group of people that can really benefit from this? And is that why? And I know Amazon wouldn't think of that.
2: No. Yeah, what are the odds that Amazon Key is tested in public housing first?
3: Right, right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I always tell people when it comes to, like, privacy online, like, if someone wants to find your info, they're gonna find it. Like, if Google wants to know info, they probably already know it already. If Amazon wants to, like, get into your house, they'll find a way to get in. And now, like, here, here we are.
4: So, (laughs) I'm, I'm mostly excited for this for the upcoming movies and TV shows that will integrate this. Oh, yeah, Law & Order. For instance. Well, not just that. (laughs) Can you just imagine, you know... Opening the door And of course A serial killer Is going to mess With the person Who's dropping off The delivery
2: Wow! Or,
4: a la Amelie You figure out How to do that To your neighbor uh-huh. And you uh, meet cute. Get to screw with them What was that? Uh,
2: it's like a rom-com Meet cute Exactly oh, okay. There's you, so you many your way to their heart
5: Yeah
2: Yeah see
4: So I live in an
3: apartment building and there's like a bunch of other units. And normally when there's a delivery or someone's checking the gas meter, they just like buzz every door and like they get in. So Mm -hmm. like,
2: yeah, it depends on where you
3: live. There's, you know, very little security, but I not letting anybody open my door without me there even if i have like if i have a webcam like oh so i can like watch a crime happen
2: i'm, I'm also sort of yeah yeah <laughs> there's a lot of belief that like visibility to something prevents people from being bad actors the door, you can
3: watch him do it
2: exactly and it's like it's ah, not necessarily the case the other thing for me is i'm like you know i'm a swarthy looking guy with a beard i'm like there's no chance somebody it looks like me is gonna get hired to be an amazon key delivery guy <laughs> people are not gonna be like yeah we're gonna let him in you know like in our house. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't think this is a job opportunity for me or other cohorts of people. And also, like, you know, feeling safe to do it as a delivery person, too, right? Like, I think there's this, like, if you're a small person or, like, you're in an environment where, like, the people you're making deliveries of, you know, sort of follow the castle doctrine and want to defend their space, like, I'd be like, I'm not tempting this thing. I'm not messing with it. Like, there's a reason, like, the door is a useful barrier. I think that, like... The UPS guy's not like super eager to get in your house. And I think that we look at the difference in our feeling of like delivery guys when I was growing up and I grew up like in the suburbs in Pennsylvania, they would pull the screen door open, but not the front door. And they could put a package in between the, the screen door and the front door. And there's this like social contract about those levels of access. The screen door wasn't locked and the front door was. And it was like you negotiated the boundaries of permeability of this space in a way that it communicated intent. And this transgresses against all that. And, like, a lot of technology is about enabling transgressions of social intent. But I think there was a nice thing to having this sort of, like, middle ground space.
1: Well, I'm thinking about the Postal Service in Brooklyn. I don't know about Mm -hmm. Manhattan. They have the key to the building.
5: Mm
2: -hmm. So,
1: granted, it's not the apartment, but they still have a key. Yeah.
2: Well, and there's the, like, package to the lobby or the, you know, in between the two doors to the entrance to a building or something like that. There are ways of negotiating the space, but I I think there is a big difference between we treat common spaces and buildings Mm -hmm. as very different than inside an apartment. And I think in a suburban environment, like I said, you treat the screen door different than the front door and you treat the mailbox different than that. I really, I do wonder about how you create a new set of norms very quickly because this product's coming and millions of people are going to use it and not everybody's going to have the same feelings about what it means for somebody to be in their space. And there's Mm going to be one like who are the people that get to be in that space you know from the amazon side and how are they treated as workers cuz amazon has a bad track record there a lot of times for the non-tech roles of the company and then the flip side is the you know people who are letting somebody into their space and what their expectations are and you know you can set up prime with like multiple addresses and members of your family and do all these things and you can do deliveries and like feel like i got a gift for grandma and it's normal for me to have people come to my home and all of a sudden you've set this expectation where like Somebody's going to barge into grandma's house with a box. Mm-hmm. I can see that being a really serious transgression of other people's norms.
3: And Amazon doesn't just use, like, UPS; They have, like, their own messenger courier service. So I had... Mm-hmm non-uniformed men knock on my door with my Amazon package in hand. And I'd be like, who are you? Mm-hmm. Like, they just look like someone. It's not like the postal service where they have to wear their uniform. Right.
2: And it's not hard to get an Amazon box.
3: Right. Right. <laughs> and so that's like another thing. And then I'd be worried. Like, I imagine because you need like a special lock that it's mostly going to be for houses. But like, what if, One of the tenants in my building convinces my landlord, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is a good idea. It would have to be all of us making that decision, but we don't own the property. It's just the landlord.
2: Yeah. On the flip side, I do think these things make us appreciate the design decisions of older systems a lot. Like, I don't think I've ever lived in a place where there's a mail slot in the door, but I, you know, friends that have, and I'm like, what an interesting accommodation, like this affordance, just the physical size of it is like, it's unlikely that you're going to get past a certain dimension, or even, like, we did have a dog door when I was growing up for, like, the dog to go in and out. And, like, when I was really little, I would get locked out and I would squeeze through the dog door as a kid. And, like, you know, I was like, oh, this is handy. And you're like, well, you know, only a small child can rob our house. And so, like, the physical constraints sort of conveyed the intent. And I think there's some utility to that. Like, instead of a custom doorknob, that's what they're talking about.
3: It's like a lock or something like yeah. that. Yeah.
2: Well, it's just a... Yeah, I mean, these exist. It's a smart, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just a smart smart, smart lock. lock. As okay. far as yeah. I can tell, yeah. Yeah, instead of a smart lock, if you were like, you know, a smart door slot, that would be a really interesting difference, right? It's like the object, not the person, because there's a very, very different level of trust between those things.
1: Speaking of pets, I wonder if that'll be an issue.
2: What if someone's 100%. cat runs out? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. There's going to be people getting bitten by, I mean, mailmen outside get bitten by dogs all the time. It's like the number one issue for postal service, and at least postal workers have like health insurance. So I think that's going to be, you know, an interesting thing. We're not brought to you this week by AWS, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> with Disney and other high-profile names increasingly moving content to their own streaming services, Netflix has pledged $8 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars, to try and have at least half of its content as Netflix originals in 2018.
4: So what kind of content do we want to see? Do you guys want to watch next year?
2: Hmm. What's the best Netflix content they've done so far? That like House of Cards, yeah. Stranger Things, maybe was that Netflix? Stranger yeah. Things, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the funny thing is, like, I didn't never remember what's Hulu and what's Netflix and what's whatever else, HBO, like, right. they all blend together. And that's actually good. This
5: is a like a tangent, but I've yeah. always thought that way, like, why do we even have these aggregators mm-hmm. in the first place? Because, and this, I mean, this is an old question, like, I've never said I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna watch some CBS,
2: all right. I never say that. Well, apparently, there are people that do, though. This is a yeah. weird thing, I didn't realize this, but like, broadcast era people. Would turn on NBC or CBS and watch it for a night. And this is why, like, they invest so much in news, even though it it loses money.
5: That must be from an older time. Yeah, I think they they turned on Walter
2: Cronkite and they kept it on that channel all the way through late night, you know, or whatever, which is bizarre and weird to me, but I guess if you only have three channels, what do you care?
5: Well, actually, I find that very reasonable. If you only have three channels and you're old enough to remember no channels, that mm-hmm. actually seems pretty reasonable. Well, that's yeah. the other
2: thing, too, is I, I forget now that, like, the networks, and this has happened again now that you have, like, a golf channel and whatever, but the networks branded themselves about, like, the audience they were for, mm-hmm. and so, like, CBS was the Tiffany network because they were sort of pinky-extended and refined, and they wouldn't show such coarse things as, you know, ABC as an upstart would, and this is this weird thing that I think... Maybe it's true into the 70s, maybe early 80s, but it's been a long time since somebody's like, this network is about that. And then it sort of returns with like AMC. is like, here's our edgy dramas, you know, and you're like, okay, I guess that's the brand of this thing. But I, don't, I couldn't tell you like half the shows I've seen in the last 10 years what network they were affiliated with, who distributed it. The only exceptions I would say, and this when Netflix used to be specifically about movies, is these days I do know which franchises are Disney. Right. So I know Marvel and Star Wars and, you know, all the Pixar stuff is Disney. And I got a kid. So he tells me that's a Disney thing. So, of course, they're going to be able to serve because you're like, oh, yeah, I have a child. We're going to watch Pixar. We're going to watch Star Wars. I guess I should pay for the Disney thing. And if you're Netflix, like we can remember one or two shows. But mostly I'm and I actually I watched um, American Vandal is so good. Is it it's good? really good. It's yeah. so good. It's really, really good. And I was like, OK. And I actually, I was like, I now have a brand affinity for Netflix. Yeah.
5: Well, it's counterintuitive. And also it seems exceptional, right? It's like, so there are a few Disneys that can pull this off that yeah. could actually like bring right. you to Disney the Disney and
2: Universal are pretty much it.
5: Yeah. Well, even Universal, do you know
2: anybody who's a Universal fan? No, but they have franchises they can use. Do you know what I mean? if they call the service like Hogwarts or something, you know? Let's say they that. have
3: Harry Potter, basically, right. right?
2: Yeah. And well they have their terrible Superman movies. But I think if you go and you have enough to sort of pull it off. You know, I think what they do is you look at music, and I worked in that business for a long time, and there was a long time the labels were like, we're going to make the streaming service. And they hated user experience and consumers so much, they could never make a good user experience. And then they started like, we'll invest in Napster, and we'll do whatever. And of course, those were all abysmal too. So they got, you know, their market handed to them by, you know, whether it was Apple or Spotify, or whoever else, and they're still really, really mad about it. And half these companies are both music labels and movie studios, right?
5: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a few. It's also very exceptional among record labels to be known as a brand. You yes. don't say, I'm going to go listen to blah, blah, blah. There's yeah. been a few over the years, you yeah. know, the old Stax Vault era. Right, back
2: in like Blue Node and Stax Vault and yeah. Motown that would mean something. Yep, and Sub Pop, I would argue. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's sure.
5: That's a name. But since then, I don't know. I mean, I'm tool to listen to the kids' music these days. But are there labels today that are sort of
2: Yeah. I mean, if the thing that's shifted is there are much more identifiers of audience and like brands. So like Young Money, like people are like, yeah, I really identify with what that label means to me, but it's not, it's distributed across different companies and it's sort of like the acts are much more free agents. Mm -hmm. And so like music is an imperfect analog to movies and sort of prestige TV because it's this much more expensive to make music's gotten a lot cheaper to make Mm -hmm. for hit records and movies have gotten a lot more expensive to make for hit movies
5: yeah i guess that's true is that true though i mean
2: yeah tentpole movies now are 200 million dollars all the time crazy and you can't find a record you know aside from a taylor swift that costs more than two million dollars to make
5: oh yeah yeah, no, that's a very high number yeah i've
3: thought of this question before because someone was tweeting asking like what content would you want and i was like one, I want my own show I don't know what it would be but I would love to see some of that money <laughs> two $8 I Eight billion love, dollars
2: for the Jen Shiffer show
3: I love super like aggro kitchen competition shows
2: like iron chef
3: like kitchen nightmares okay stuff like that chopped chopped yeah like cause, chopped because one like it's intense I love cooking it feels accessible like I can do this like at home myself there's usually a lot more like diversity in those competition shows mm-hmm, than in like mm-hmm. Nighttime ABC like game shows, and yeah, they hold my attention more.
2: Netflix presents Jen Schiffer in the glitch kitchen,
3: yeah, there you go, okay, ship it eight billion
2: dollars <laughs> um, done
3: my third thing is I want them to, and this will be hard, try to do not exactly a reboot, but what would work today of family Matters, which is my favorite show growing up
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: and well, they
2: did Fuller House, so you hard can, pass. so you can uh- do <laughs> family or matters. Yeah, I guess. That, I'm not an expert. No, I mean, but... if
3: they got, like, some of the characters, some of the actors, no, I some, this but is no. the thing.
2: One, Jaleel White does not need the money. Yeah. Two, if they did it now, it would just be, like, the right, Urkel show. Right, right.
3: That's why it's like, you can't just do, like, a reboot, but, there like, wouldn't be something any Winslow's that's just in clever. It. It's got to be, like, something like that family and, then like, the side characters, like, really.
2: But this is the problem, is Urkel Fonzied the whole thing. There is no Winslow family left. Like, the entire memory of Family Matters is just Urkel now.
3: Yeah, well, they, they should just do another show like that because I want them to. Okay. And then the fourth is I would really love to see a studio try to do something as like innovative for like movie making that Who Frame Roger Rabbit was. Because mm-hmm, now Who Frame mm-hmm. Roger Rabbit doesn't seem innovative, but when it was made, it really was. So yeah. I want to see like them put some of that money into something that's groundbreaking. That's not like just updating the lightsabers in Star mm. Wars movies.
2: I watched Enchanted with my kid the other night, which is Amy Adams. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And she's like a Disney-esque princess who comes to real life in New York. And I found out while we were watching the trailer for it, it's the first Disney film combining live action and animation since We Framed Roger Rabbit. And it's sort of innovative in the same way. And I was like, but I didn't think of it that way at all. You
3: might also remember Paula Abdul's Opposites Attract.
2: Sure. MC Scat Cat. Yeah. It's probably classic. one of my top 10 MC Scat Cat songs. Like it's up there. Yeah. <laughs> No. Same, same, same here? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, not. Same. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, it just it taught me that opposites attract. It stuck with me.
3: Well, I just think like Netflix has a lot of money. They're giving a lot of it to Adam Sandler for some reason. It would be nice if they tried to innovate in some sort of way. But I will say I want to recommend American Vandal is so good. It is really good. It's like satirical of their own content they've made in the past. And yeah. It's, just, it's really clever. It's like
2: a, a serial style crime drama about somebody who obscenely vandalized the Cars of the teachers at a high school. And is, it's is very and, absurd. And Adam
4: Sandler isn't in it. He's no, not absolutely involved.
2: Not. No, no. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, Sandler free. So I think that <laughs> accounts for like seven and a half billion of the eight billion is for Glitch Kitchen show, Urkel Matters, yeah, and MC Scat Cat yeah. serial. Okay.
3: Also, another thing that would be interesting for them to explore is something that was like tech TV, but cool.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's a tall order. I know. I know. Again,
3: they have a lot of money. If they want to talk to somebody about it, I'd be happy to be paid by them to help consult.
2: they had, was it ZDTV and had sold out O'Brien? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was like five minutes where I was like, this is cool. But it was like novel to see them talking about software on TV.
3: I like G4 TV. They had some good shows, but I wasn't really into games, but it was like the only like tech focus kind Mm -hmm, of show mm -hmm. that had women hosts that I was into.
2: Well, tech is all of culture, right? And it's weird that like you can see movie reviews and you can see reviews of like TV or like here's the hottest restaurants that are opening. And then, you know, maybe once a year when Apple has a new iPhone, but for the most part, they just don't talk about software or tech. And it's like we spend all our time staring at these phones and yet it's not treated as culture at all. I mean obviously like if you have Netflix you got a computer you got a phone you got something all right good sold ship it let me know when it's done yep i'll tune in is that what you do on Netflix do you tune in you just click yeah, yeah I subscribe think so. well
5: how about a glitch for TV shows what if you could
2: whoa i think it's called youtube but that's a great yeah. idea <laughs> definitely somebody should absolutely make youtube well now that we have solved all of the issues in tech news this week i think it is time to call this episode to an end this has been Stack Overflow podcast number 120. We recorded it Thursday, October 26, 2017 at Stack Overflow's headquarters in New York City. And this podcast was brought to you by Oracle. You can check out developer.oracle.com to learn about all the ways Oracle supports developers like you and you and you. Also, it's been brought to you by Spaces, the new digital ocean platform that you can try out for two months for free if you want to take a trial of it. You go to do.co slash Overflow. And, you know, I want to take a little bit of time to thank everybody that makes it possible for us to do the show. Our audio engineer here is Carlos Hernandez. Our audio editor is David Greenlee. Technology concierge is Michael Rosa. Producer, Jess Pardue, in absence today, but uh, she's dearly missed. And our executive producer is Caitlin Pike. So, on behalf of Leon Young, Jen Schiffer, our news editor, Ilana Yatsaki... Our executive producer, Caitlin Pike, again, who has joined us on air, which we love. And engineering manager, Matt Sherman. I am Anil Dash. And for all of us on the Stack Overflow podcast, we hope you have a super spooky Halloween.
4: Thanks, everyone. Bye Happy
0: bye. Halloween. Bye. Bye. Bye.
4: Gross, <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> let it go, yeah. let it go. We're done. I have, I have to believe that there's like somebody doing artisanal candy corn
2: to percent yeah. like oh, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, there's yeah. elves that are crafting each kernel, yeah. yeah. Okay.
4: So, so, in my research on this topic, which I care very much about, they also have done pumpkin spice corns. What's well, there's the, pumpkin that's spice umbrained. everything,
5: but that's, why that's you know. I mean, it's not good.
2: It's on brand. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's close. <laughs> it's the I right I imagine season. that would
3: be one of the better of all the really bad pumpkin spice flavored things.
2: Pumpkin spice is just nutmeg, right? Is that the...
3: It's I like, yeah,
1: nutmeg
5: no and orange dye.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I learned that just now. I had
5: no idea.
1: Apparently, you can save 50 cents if you just get a regular latte and ask them to put the squirt in of yeah. the
3: pumpkin... Nice. Get a oh. pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks it wasn't me. and open I didn't up the cup try that. I was be horrified.
2: Didn't you? You brought the rainbow lattes in for our prior episode, I right? I did.
3: I mm-hmm. did. Rainbow lattes? But it was the uh, Yeah, The unicorn, oh, the yeah. unicorn, unicorn yeah. That
2: yeah. was, um, that was yeah. unfortunate. That's my worst memory of being in this room. Sorry, I closed my Trello card. So now we just live here forever.
3: You're going to start getting winded.
2: I know. Slow down a bit. I am. Treadmill desk is not helping. <laughs> Treadmill desk podcast would be amazing. <laughs>
5: yeah,
2: Thank you. Please tune in next time. Like and subscribe. All right, we're out. Showbiz,
0: no sellout. That's the way it is.